I'm glad you're back with us for another masterpiece. Now this two-parter is regarded as one of F. Scott Fitzgerald's finest. In this, he scrutinizes the American dream. So, please, tuck in and enjoy Winter Dreams. Some of the caddies were poor as sin and lived in one-room houses with a neurasthenic cow in the front yard. But Dexter Green's father owned the second best grocery store in Black Bear. The best one was the hub, patronized by the wealthy people from Sherry Island. And Dexter caddied only for pocket money. In the fall, when the days became crisp and gray, and the long Minnesota winter shut down like the white lid of a box, Dexter's skis moved over the snow that hid the fairways of the golf course. At these times, the country gave him a feeling of profound melancholy. It offended him that the links should lie in enforced fallowness, haunted by ragged sparrows for the long season. It was dreary, too, that the tees where the gay colors fluttered in summer. There were now only the desolate sandboxes, knee-deep in crusted ice. When he crossed the hills, the wind blew cold as misery, and if the sun was out, he tramped with his eyes squinted up against the hard, dimensionless glare. In April, the winter ceased abruptly. The snow ran down into Black Bear Lake, scarcely tarrying for the early golfers to brave the season with red and black balls. Without elation, without an interval of moist glory, the cold was gone. Dexter knew that there was something dismal about this northern spring, just as he knew there was something gorgeous about the fall. Fall made him clinch his hands and tremble and repeat idiotic sentences to himself and make brisk, abrupt gestures of command to imaginary audiences and armies. October filled him with hope, which November raised to a sort of ecstatic triumph. And in this mood, the fleeting, brilliant impressions of the summer at Sherry Island were ready grist to his mill. He became a golf champion and defeated Mr. T.A. Hedrick in a marvelous match, played a hundred times over the fairways of his imagination. A match each detail of which he changed untiringly. Sometimes he won the almost la he won with almost laughable ease. Sometimes he came up magnificently from behind. Again, 
Stepping from a Pierce Arrow automobile like Mr. Mortimer Jones, he strolled frigidly into the lounge of the Sherry Island Golf Club, or perhaps surrounded by an admiring crowd. He gave an exhibition of fancy diving from the springboard of the club raft. Among those who watched him in open-mouthed wonder was Mr. Mortimer Jones. And one day it came to pass that Mr. Jones himself, and not his ghost, came right up to Dexter with tears in his eyes and said that Dexter was the best caddy in the club and wouldn't he decide not to quit if Mr. Jones made it worth his while because every other caddy in the club lost one ball a hole for him regularly. No, sir, said Dexter decisively. I don't want a caddy anymore. Then after a pause, I'm too old. You're not more than 14. Why the devil did you decide just this morning that you wanted to quit? You promised that next week you'd go over to the state tournament with me. I decided I was too old. Dexter handed in his A-class badge, collected what money was due him from the caddy master and walked home to Black Bear Village. The best caddy I ever saw, shouted Mr. Mortimer Jones over a drink that afternoon. Never lost a ball. Willing, intelligent, quiet, honest, grateful. The little girl who had done this was 11. Beautifully ugly as little girls are apt to be who are destined after a few years to be inexpressibly lovely and bring no end of misery to a great number of men. The spark, however, was perceptible. There was a general ungodliness in the way her lips twisted down at the corners when she smiled and in the, heaven help us, in the almost passionate quality of her eyes. Vitality is born early in such women. It was utterly in evidence now, shining through her thin frame in a sort of glow. She'd come eagerly out onto the course at nine o'clock with a white linen nurse and five small new golf clubs in a white canvas bag, which the nurse was carrying. When Dexter first saw her, she was standing by the caddy house rather ill at ease and trying to conceal the fact mm, by engaging her nurse in an obviously unnatural conversation graced by startling and irrelevant grimaces from herself. Well, it's certainly a nice day, Hilda, Dexter heard her say. She drew down the corners of her mouth, smiled and glanced furtively around, her eyes in transit falling for an instant on Dexter and then to the nurse. Well, I guess there aren't very many people out here this morning, are there? The smile again, radiant, blatantly artificial, convincing. I don't know what we're supposed to do now, said the nurse, looking nowhere in particular. 
That's all right. I'll fix it up. Dexter stood perfectly still, his mouth slightly ajar. He knew that if he moved forward a step, his stare would be in line of her vision, and if he moved backward, he would lose his full view of her face. For a moment, he had not realized how young she was. Now he remembered having seen her several times the year before in bloomers. Suddenly, involuntarily, he laughed, a short, abrupt laugh, and then Startled by himself, he turned and began to walk quickly away. Boy, Dexter stopped. Boy, Oof, beyond question, he was addressed. Not only that, but he was treated to that absurd, absurd smile, that preposterous smile, the memory of which at least a dozen men were to carry into middle age. Boy, do you know where the golf teacher is? Yeah, he's giving a lesson. Well, do you know where the caddy master is? Oh, he isn't here yet this morning. Oh. For a moment, this baffled her. She stood alternately on her right foot and left foot. Well, we'd like to get a caddy, said the nurse. Mrs. Mortimer Jones sent us out to play golf, and we don't know how without a caddy. Here she was stopped by an ominous glance from Miss Jones, followed immediately by the smile. Well, there aren't any caddies here except me, said Dexter to the nurse. And I got to stay here in charge until the caddy master gets here. Oh. Miss Jones, in her retinue, now withdrew and at a proper distance from Dexter, became involved in a heated conversation, conversation, which was concluded by Miss Jones taking one of the clubs and hitting it on the ground with violence. For further emphasis, she raised it again and was about to bring it down smartly upon the nurse's bosom when the nurse seized the club and twisted it from her hands. You damn little mean old thing, cried Miss Jones wildly. Another argument ensued. Realizing that the elements of the comedy were implied in the scene, Dexter several times began to laugh but each time restrained the laugh before it reached audibility. He could not resist the monstrous conviction that the little girl was justified in beating the nurse. The situation was resolved by the fortuitous appearance of the caddy master, who was appealed to immediately by the nurse. Miss Jones is to have a little caddy, and this one says he can't go. Mr. McKenna said I was to wait here until you came, said Dexter quickly. Well, he's here now, Miss Jones smiled cheerfully at the caddy master. Then she dropped her bag and set off at a haughty mince toward the first tee. Well, caddy master turned to Dexter. What are you standing there like a dummy for? Go pick up the young lady's clubs. I don't think I'll go out today, said Dexter. You don't. I think I'll quit. The enormity of his decision frightened him. He was a favorite caddy, and the $30 a month he earned through the summer was not to be made elsewhere around the lake. But he had received 
a strong emotional shock. And his perturbation required a violent and immediate outlet. It is not so simple as that either, as so frequently would be the case in the future. Dexter was unconsciously dictated to by his winter dreams. Now, of course, the quality and the seasonability of these winter dreams varied, but the stuff of them remained. They persuaded Dexter several years later to pass up a business course, course at the State University. His father, prospering now, would have paid his way for the precarious advantage of attending an older and more famous university in the East, where he was bothered by his scanty funds. But do not get the impression, because his winter dreams happened to be concerned at first with musings on the rich, that there was anything merely snobbish in the boy. He wanted not association with glittering things and glittering people. He wanted the glittering things themselves. Often he reached out for the best without knowing why he wanted it. And sometimes he ran up against the mysterious denials and prohibitions in which life indulges. It is with one of those denials, and not with his career as a whole, that this story deals. He made money. It was rather amazing. After college, he went to the city from which Black Bear Lake draws its wealthy patrons. When he was only 23 and had been there not quite two years, there were already people who liked to say, now there's a boy. All about him, rich men's sons were peddling bonds precariously or investing patrimonies precariously or plodding through the two dozen volumes of the George Washington commercial course. But Dexter borrowed a thousand dollars on his college degree and his confident mouth and bought a partnership in a laundry. It was a small laundry when he went into it, but Dexter made a specialty of learning how the English washed fine woolen golf stockings without shrinking them. And within a year, he was catering to the trade that wore knickerbockers. Men were insisting that their Shetland hose and sweaters go to his laundry, just as they had insisted on a caddy who would find their golf balls. A little later, he was doing their wives' lingerie as well and running five branches in different parts of the city. Before he was 27, he owned the largest string of laundries in his section of the country. It was then that he sold out and went to New York. But the part of his story that concerns us goes back to the days when he was making his first big success. When he was 23, Mr. Hart, 
one of the gray-haired men who liked to say, Now there's a boy, gave him a guest card to the Sherry Island Golf Club for a weekend. So he signed his name one day on the register and that afternoon played golf in a foursome with Mr. Hart and Mr. Sandwood and Mr. T.A. Hedrick. He did not consider it necessary to remark that he had once carried Mr. Hart's bag over this same links and that he knew every trap and gully with his eyes shut. But he found himself glancing at the four caddies who trailed them, trying to catch a gleam or gesture that would remind him of himself that would lessen the gap which lay between his present and his past. It was a curious day, slashed abruptly with fleeting familiar impressions. One minute he had the sense of being a trespasser, and the next he was impressed by the tremendous superiority he felt toward Mr. T.A. Hedrick, who was a bore and not even a good golfer anymore. Then, because of a ball Mr. Hart lost near the 15th green, an enormous thing happened. While they were searching, the stiff grasses of the rough there, yes, there was a clear call of four from behind a hill in their rear. And as they all turned abruptly from their search, a bright new ball sliced abruptly over the hill and caught Mr. T.A. Hedrick in the abdomen. My God, cried Mr. T.A. Hedrick. They ought to put some of these crazy women off the course. It's getting to be outrageous. A head and a voice came up together over the hill. Do you mind if we go through? You hit me in the stomach, declared Mr. Hedrick wildly. Did I? The girl approached the group of men. I'm sorry. I yelled for. Her glance fell casually on each of the men and then scanned the fairway for her ball. Did I bounce into the rough? It was impossible to determine whether this question was ingenuous or malicious. In a moment, however, she left no doubt. For as her partner came up over the hill, she called cheerfully, Here I am! I'd have gone on the green except that I hit something. As she took her distance for a short mashy shot, Dexter looked at her closely. She wore a blue gingham dress, rimmed at throat and shoulders, with a white edging that accentuated her tan. The quality of exaggeration, of thinness, which made her passionate eyes and downturned mouth absurd at eleven, was gone now. She was arrestingly beautiful. The color in her cheeks was centered like the color in a picture. It was not a high color, but a sort of fluctuating and feverish warmth, so shaded that it seemed at any moment it would recede and disappear. This color and the mobility of her mouth gave a continual impression of flux, of intense life, of passionate vitality, balanced only partially by the sad luxury of her eyes. She swung her mashie impatiently and without interest, pitching the ball 
into a sand pit on the other side of the green. With a quick, insincere smile and a careless thank you, she went on after it. Oh, that Judy Jones, remarked Mr. Hedrick on the next tee as they waited some moments for her to play on ahead. All she needs is to be turned up and spanked for six months and then to be married off to a ah, old-fashioned cavalry captain. My God, she's good-looking, said Mr. Sandwood, who was just over 30. Good-looking, cried Mr. Hedrick contemptuously. She always looks as if she wanted to be kissed, turning those big cow eyes on every calf in town. It was doubtful if Mr. Hedrick intended a reference to the maternal instinct. She'd play pretty good golf if she'd try, said Mr. Sandwood. Oh, she has no form, said Mr. Hedrick solemnly. She has a nice figure, said Mr. Sandwood. Better thank the Lord she doesn't drive a swifter ball, said Mr. Hart, winking at Dexter. Later in the afternoon, the sun went down with a riotous swirl of gold and varying blues and scarlets and left the dry, rustling night of western summer. Dexter watched from the veranda of the golf club, watched the even overlap of the waters in the little wind, silver molasses under the harvest moon. Then the moon held a finger to her lips, and the lake became a clear pool, pale and quiet. Dexter put on his bathing suit and swam out to the farthest raft, where he stretched, dripping on the wet canvas of the springboard. There was a fish jumping and a star shining, and the lights around the lake were gleaming. Over on a dark peninsula, a piano was playing the songs of last summer and of summers before that. And because the sound of a piano over a stretch of water had always seemed beautiful to Dexter, he lay perfectly still and listened. The tune the piano was playing at that moment had been gay and new five years before when Dexter was a sophomore at college. They had played it at a prom once when he could not afford the luxury of proms, and he had stood outside the gymnasium and listened. The sound of the tune precipitated in him a sort of ecstasy, and it was with that ecstasy he viewed what happened to him now. It was a mood of intense appreciation, a sense that for once he was magnificently attuned to life and that everything about him was radiating a brightness and a glamour he might never know again. A low, pale oblong detached itself suddenly from the darkness of the island, spitting forth the reverberate sound of a racing motorboat, two white streamers of 
cleft water rolled themselves out behind it, and almost immediately the boat was beside him, drowning out the hot tinkle of the piano in the drone of its spray. Dexter, raising himself on his arms, was aware of a figure standing at the wheel of two dark eyes regarding him over the lengthening space of water. And then the boat had gone by and was sweeping in an immense and purposeless circle of spray round and round in the middle of the lake. With equal eccentricity, one of the circles flattened out and headed back toward the raft. Who's that? she called, shutting off her motor. She was so near now that Dexter could see her bathing suit, which consisted apparently of pink rompers. The nose of the boat bumped the raft, and as the latter tilted rakishly, he was precipitated toward her with different degrees of interest. They recognized each other. Aren't you one of those men we played through this afternoon? She demanded. He was. Well, do you know how to drive a motorboat? Because if you do, I wish you'd drive this one so I can ride on the surfboard behind. My name is Judy Jones. She favored him with an absurd smirk. Rather, what tried to be a smirk for twist her mouth as she might, it was not grotesque. It was merely beautiful. And I live in a house over there on the island, and in that house there is a man waiting for me. When he drove up at the door, I drove out of the dock because he says I'm his ideal. There was a fish jumping and a star shining, and the lights around the lake were gleaming. Dexter sat beside Judy Jones, and she explained how her boat was driven, and then she was in the water swimming to the floating surfboard with a sinuous crawl. Watching her was without effort to the eye watching a branch waving or a seagull flying. Her arms, burned to a butternut, moved sinuously among the dull platinum ripples, elbow appearing first, casting the forearm back with a cadence of falling water, then reaching out and down, stabbing a path ahead. They moved out into the lake, Turning, Dexter saw that she was kneeling on the low rear of the now up-tilted surfboard. Go faster, she called. Fast as it'll go. Obediently, he jammed the lever forward and the white spray mounted at the bow. When he looked around again, the girl was standing up on the rushing board. Her arms spread wide, her eyes lifted toward the moon. It's awful cold she shouted. What's your name? He told her. Well, why don't you come to dinner tomorrow night? His heart turned over like the flywheel of the boat. And for the second time, her casual whim gave a new direction to his life. Next evening, while he waited for her to come downstairs, Dexter peopled the soft, deep summer room and the sun porch that opened from it with the men who had already loved Judy Jones. He knew the sort of men they were, the men who then, 
who, when he first went to college, had entered from the great prep schools with graceful clothes and the deep tan of healthy summers. He had seen that in one sense, he was better than these men. He was newer and stronger. Yet, in acknowledging to himself that he wished his children to be like them, he was admitting that he was but the rough, strong stuff from which they eternally sprang. When the time had come for him to wear good clothes, he had known who the best tailors were in America, and the best tailors in America had made him the suit he wore this evening. He had acquired that particular reserve peculiar to his university that set it off from other universities. He recognized the value to him of such a mannerism, and he had adopted it. He knew that to be careless in dress and manner required more confidence than to be careful. But carelessness was for his children. His mother's name had been Primalek. She was a Bohemian of the peasant class, and she had talked broken English to the end of her days. Her son must keep to the set patterns. At a little after seven, Judy Jones came downstairs. She wore a blue silk afternoon dress, and he was disappointed at first that she had not put on something more elaborate. This feeling was accentuated when, after a brief greeting, she went to the door of a butler's pantry and, pushing it open, called, You can serve dinner, Martha. He had rather expected that a butler would announce dinner, that there would be a cocktail. Then he put these thoughts behind him as they sat down side by side on a lounge and looked at each other. Father and mother won't be here she said thoughtfully. He remembered the last time he had seen her father and he was glad the parents were not to be here tonight. They might wonder who he was. He had been born in Keeble, a Minnesota village 50 miles farther north, and he always gave Keeble as his home instead of Black Bear Village. Country towns were well enough to come from if they weren't inconveniently in sight and used as footstools by fashionable lakes. They talked of his university, which she had visited frequently during the past two years, and of the nearby city which supplied Sherry Island with its patrons, and whether Dexter would return next day to, to his prospering laundries. During dinner, she slipped into a moody depression which gave Dexter a feeling of uneasiness. Whatever petulance she uttered in her throaty voice worried him. Whatever she smiled at, at him, at a chicken liver, at nothing, it disturbed him that her smile could have no root in mirth or even in amusement. When the scarlet corners of her lips curved down, it was less a smile than an invitation to a kiss. Then, after dinner, she led him out on the dark sun porch and deliberately changed the atmosphere. Do you mind if I weep a little? 
she said. Oh, I'm afraid I'm boring you, he responded quickly. You're not. I like you. But I've just had a terrible afternoon. There was a man I cared about, and this afternoon he told me out of a clear sky that he was poor as a church mouse. He'd never even hinted it before. Does this sound horribly mundane? Perhaps he was afraid to tell you. I suppose he was, she answered. He didn't start right. You see, if I'd thought of him as poor, well, I've been mad about loads of poor men and fully intended to marry them all. But in this case, I hadn't thought of him that way, and my interest in him wasn't strong enough to survive the shock. <sighs> As if a girl calmly informed her fiancé that she was a widow. Mm. He might not object to widows, but... Let's start right. She interrupted herself suddenly. Who are you, anyhow? For a moment, Dexter hesitated, and then... I'm nobody, he announced. My career is largely a matter of futures. Are you poor? No, he said, frankly. I'm probably making more money than any man my age in the Northwest. I know. That's an obnoxious remark, but you advised me to start right. There was a pause. Then she smiled, and the corners of her mouth drooped, and an almost imperceptible sway brought her closer to him, looking up into his eyes. A lump rose in Dexter's throat, and he waited Breathless for the experiment, facing the unpredictable compound that would form mysteriously from the elements of their lips. Then he saw she communicated her excitement to him lavishly, deeply, with kisses that were not a promise, but a fulfillment. They aroused in him not hunger demanding renewal, but servant that would demand more. Kisses that were like charity, creating want by holding back nothing at all. It did not take him many hours to decide that he had wanted Judy Jones ever since he was a proud, desirous little boy. <laughs>